What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Andrea Correa. We are trying something totally different here where we're literally recording the intro right after we did the interview. A little bit of background on how this conversation came to be story time. Our office here in Seattle is downtown, and I don't live downtown and parking sucks there. So I was getting an Uber pool to the office one morning. I get in the front seat. Someone from the back seat says my name. So I turn around and it's Andrea. We literally hadn't seen each other for more than five years. We spend the entire Uber ride catching up and we came to the conclusion that she just had to come on the podcast. So there's also talk of us working together on a pop-up here in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. Andrea herself has years of pastry and savory experience at restaurants like Noma, El Bui, Grace, which we both on the opening team for, and more recently as the executive pastry chef at the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco. But here's the kicker. When I asked Andrea when we were in the Uber where she's cooking now, she let me know that she had gone through this really exciting and fantastic transition into the world of professional trapeze. So she's teaching and trying out for shows and learning the ropes, literally and figuratively, in that arena. And so we talk about making that transition, tips for aspiring chefs, and I say aspiring because we talk about young, just out of high school folks, as well as people who have had careers before entering the kitchen. We discuss her experience going from chef de partie to manager and what she learned along that journey, and even how trapeze and cooking are surprisingly similar. I've got a couple of videos here that I have uh, been playing for the folks that are on the video version. Okay, I'm going to get out of the way here please enjoy our conversation i don't think i've ever done this before starting with a guest question from from mise en place xvx because i think this really sets the stage what is it like to pursue cooking as your passion at such a high caliber for so long to end up changing your path I just found another passion. So for me, a lot of people ask me this as I was going through the process and trying to make the decision if I wanted to leave the kitchen or not. And it was it was hard and it was a lot of crying and, you know, <laughs> letting go. It's a difficult thing to do. Um, but I don't feel like I've closed the door in my life. I just opened a new one and I found a new passion and I found something that I wanted to dedicate my life to. And so I'm going to give it my all, which is what I'm doing right now, just like I did with the kitchen. And I'm applying all of the lessons that I learned in the kitchen to my new life. There's so much to unpack there. So leaving the kitchen, who was, was there anyone who was like, you should just do it? Or were most people like, what are you doing? You're, you're crazy. I think there was only one person that was very adamant about me making that choice and saying, yes, you should do it. And it was someone in, someone in the trapeze world. Who okay. Was, his name is Paul, and um, he's one of my coaches. And he encouraged me to do it, but he always understood my culinary background and how much that could make me better as a flying trapeze artist. Sure. Do you have an increased amount of empathy now towards people who have the kitchen as their second? Because there's a lot of people like that who are, you know, ex-finance. I used to be in real estate. I used to 
sit at a desk all day and now I want to follow my other, this passion of mine, which is the kitchen. And I feel like most of those people start a little later in life. They start very humble. They have a ton of drive behind motivation behind them. But I don't know. I always, I don't know anything else. I, this has been my only career. Like this is, this is the only other secondary career I've ever had, which is doing video and podcast stuff, but I still cook, right? So if there's someone who is thinking about making the switch, what has been your experience and what, what has been particularly helpful in your transition? Well, before, before that, I, you first said if I have more podcasts, yeah, yeah, yeah. I make that shift. And yes, absolutely. I was the first one to judge Yes, the older people that walked in the kitchen and had no clue what they were doing. And I was like, come on, you got to move faster. You have to, you know, we're here. Not This is not cooking yes. grandmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a lot more, you know, understanding of being in that place because that's where I'm at right now. And yes. I hope that people have <laughs> that same compassion for have, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be um, patient. And, yeah. And what was the other part of the question? Just, just, um, you basically answered it. Just talk, just speaking on if you have advice for people mindset wise or, um, ways that you conduct yourself or specific questions that you ask when you're entering this new domain where it's like, it's not like you're a, you're a 17 year old kid and you don't have any life experience. Like you clearly have a solid work ethic. You know how to work in teams. You know how to do all these things but you're applying it to a new skill set and a new environment and a new dynamic. So if someone is coming from finance or opera or, you know, whatever, and going into the kitchen, what should they be thinking about? What should they be? Well, so I am not in finance or whatever other kind of work environment that we're in. But for me, at least what I'm trying to do for myself is using my previous work experience and applying it to what I'm doing now. Yeah. Because... Sure, we don't know what we're doing in the new job, but we have life lessons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to struggle to get there. And why throw those away? Sure. I think they're going to be just as valuable in the new environment if we're capable to applying them. So I think the main thing is, like, I when I first started in the kitchen, for me, it was about watching people and watching how everyone worked and how people put their apron on Mm. and, you know, the uniforms and all the little things so that you can fit in and so that you can be part of that environment. So I tried to do, do the same in the circus world and, yeah, and applied my kitchen knowledge. Totally. I think that's what people often get caught up with is being, a, like, apologetic about, like, I don't fit in here because X, Y, Z, when what it should be is, like, I have these pillars, not necessarily, like, I worked in finance, so I'm going to organize my prep list in a spreadsheet kind of thing because that might not be the way that the kitchen is yeah. best run. But I think there's, va- like you said, there's value in taking what you had experience in before and applying it where it makes sense. I yeah. think that's the most important thing is contextual. So where should we go from here? Because there's so much, there's so much to unpack. But my audience does li- love to hear about career paths. So I'd love to walk through yours as far as how you got your start in food and, and, and what inspired you growing up with food, if at all. Like I'm, my story is food did not really, my mom didn't cook at home. I ate a lot of fast food growing up in the Midwest of the U.S. And so food entered my life later um, when I finally got to New York and started going to school. So take us back. Where, where, where did it start for you? This is going to take a while and you can stop me from (laughs) taking too much. Please. Um, I, same thing for me. I mean, my mom didn't 
cook very much and it was my parents are divorced so it was just my mom and I um but for me I was just always drawn to food so I remember like growing up and getting the newspaper on Sundays and there was like a section that was like the culinary section and they had like cakes and pastries and I would like collect that section and I still have a binder with all of that wow. and I like would sit through it and flip through the pages and I started baking some of the recipes not very successfully mm. um but that's kind of how it started and one day I decided I wanted to cook for my mom for Mother's Day and you know this is like 13 14 years old I have no idea I've never cooked a thing sure. maybe you know a fried egg at mm-hmm. the most and I tried to do a three-course meal Whoa. Um, <laughs> it was a disaster. <laughs> disaster how? Like uh, burned things, over seasoned things? Um, undercooked oh, rice, no. undercooked chicken. <laughs> and my mom trying to help me and I'm in tears and I'm saying, no, I don't want your help. Yes. Um, but eventually I let her help and we ate and it was great. And sure. we managed to make it work. That's awesome. Um, Going back to those recipes, were they all Colombian pastries or was it like a international publication um it was european pastries got it and so a lot of the ingredients we could not find in yeah. colombia and i'm trying to go through the city with my mom carrying this little magazine sure and like i'm looking for almond paste but it was impossible to yes. find yes yes um, so there's a lot in that kind of 11 to 13 year old um stage in your life where i feel like that kind of dictates what a lot of people do later on so like for me, I was super into uh, like video games and collecting things. And so that kind of like translates to where I'm at now with making a bunch of these gear things. And I love uh, media clearly. And so it, it didn't hit me until I started to think back on what was I doing when I was 11, 13-ish. What did you like about cooking back then? Like what was it that working with your hands that school didn't give you or um for me it was the whole experience like even that meal even though i had never cooked before i had a menu like i wrote out the menu lead like little drawings i went and borrowed from um, my aunt like linen and china and i saved money from my allowance so that i could buy the best ingredients and like it was a whole sure the whole nine yards yes. for the planning of the meal um and so, yeah, for me, it was the whole experience. Got it. And so you weren't, you were doing it for you. You were doing it for your mother. You weren't doing it to be like a certain chef. You didn't have any idols back then. No. No, I, okay. Nope. So how does that, so between then and your first professional kitchen job, what what made you not go into any other industry? It was kind of an accident. I... I graduated from high school, decided I wanted to be an industrial designer. And the focus for design, I wanted to design things for restaurants. But I never, at the time, I didn't think, like, I want to be a chef or I want to work in in the front of the house or any of those things. It just, yeah, I wanted to design things for restaurants. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where um, one of my uncle lives, to learn English, and then decided to stay, applied for... um, to get into college and I couldn't get into the college I wanted to. So I stayed at Georgia state. They did not have a design program. So I ended up doing hospitality, Got it. but it was just because it was close enough to restaurants and it was going to kind of give me an insight into the sure. industry. Started working as a server at a, like 
Applebee's kind of place. Yeah. In, in the mall, mm-hmm. you know, underneath a movie theater. Yes. And from the server side, I always, always like was staring at the kitchen, talking to the cooks. Half of them were Mexican and spoke Spanish. Yes. So we got along great. Awesome. And they started teaching me how to cook. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I got a shift in the kitchen and then... Then you know, I just kind of like transitioned from being a server to being in the kitchen and never looked back. Sure. So from in the hospitality realm, when you were going to school there, is there anything that they that came up in your studies or something that you read that you can look back on now and see? Oh, that's why I went into fine dining. Because I remember this one moment where someone was. I had this professor in culinary school who was talking about the six things that Michelin guy looks for in a, in a restaurant. And one of them is like the caliber of the chef. And one is like rare and exotic ingredients. And the other one, the last one that she said was like this wow factor, which is the, you and I are going out to dinner. You have a purse, you sit down, you go to put your purse down. There should be a little bench for your purse. Like that's like, whoa, like they, they don't want my purse on the ground. That's amazing. And that stuck with me. And I, 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 I can trace back a lot of my fine dining ambition towards that moment in school did you have anything like that where you read about something um again i think fine dining for me was an an accident yes i've just stumbled into the right things in my life (laughs) um i so from that restaurant one of the cooks worked at another place that was the bucket diner and you know they like to believe called themselves an upscale diner i don't know that there's necessarily such a yes. thing but it was better than diner food we actually cooked and sure um i got that job and then i made an italian chef that was part of the same company and i told them i really really wanted to go to italy to work at a restaurant but i had no idea what i wanted i didn't really know what i was asking for and mm-hmm. he got me a stash at a two mission star in milan got it um i didn't speak the language i didn't know what two mission star was yes. i had no idea what you know fine dining meant yes um but I went and I got there and, you know, it was a struggle. They gave me, you know, and then we have three tasting menus and I've never even heard of a tasting wow. menu in my life before. Um, but I loved it. I thrived. And so it just kind of stuck with me. Do you feel like that was a good glimpse on Italian food? Doing a tasting menu like that? I think so. Okay. Yeah. You felt like it satisfied whatever you were looking to do in Italy. I mean, the ingredients were amazing. Sure. And we made gnocchi from scratch and pasta from scratch Amazing. and i had to make stocks and break down ducks and it, for me that was yeah. cool so then from there what what else led up to you know some of these other larger stages that you would do and you would start to did did something happen there that you know lit the spark where you're like this is meaningful this is powerful um so after I came back from Italy, I this chef needed someone to work pastry, and um, I felt like I owed him. So I, you know, I wanted uh-huh. to work for him and stay with him at the restaurant. So we worked together. I took a pastry position for a year. I hated pastry at first. Huh. Um, and then by the end of that year, I decided I wanted to go to pastry school. Mm. I really actually wanted to go to culinary school, but I couldn't afford it. It was a long time, sure. and I. Um, I had just finished doing hospitality, so it just wasn't in my budget or timeline to do two, three more years of culinary school. Yeah. So I decided to go to pastry school. I met my ex-husband then um, in Chicago, and he had already, he had been at El Bulli. He knew all about fine dining. He knew that world better than yes. anyone I knew. Um, and he had a job offer in, at Noma 
Got it. So when was this? Can you put this on the calendar? I think eight to ten years ago. Okay, got it. Yeah. So yeah, that would have been a while. Okay, got it. Got it. Um, Okay, so that ultimately led to the season at El Bui. Yes. Got it. Got it. Um, I have some questions on El Bui. Okay. And you can, I want, I want you to tell us all about it, but I want to make sure that I'm not glossing over anything. Okay. I'm not. So that season was very impactful, of course, because it was documented, right? Lisa Abend was there. Sorcerer's Apprentice happened, right? (laughs) Did you know going in that that was going to be the case that you were going to have cameras and journalists? And I mean, because it's already intense enough, right? Do you, were there people there that were there the season before that said that this is different than the other seasons? Do you feel like it was a good season to go? Would you rather had that not happened? I think it was a good season to go. I guess for me, it was never a question. I never thought about it like that until yeah. now. It was just like, I get in. You're I'm just grateful for the opportunity. I'm, like, yeah. I'm here and I'm going to be the best, best of this. Yes. Um, and before, when I was at Noma, before that, we I had a little bit of a glance of what having the media around meant. I see. Um, you know, Noma went from number 15 to number 5 when I was there. And so the pressure went up and we had a lot of journalists and a lot of people coming to eat. Yes. And, you know, you just kind of have to learn to work around it. And it's more like, you're in my way, but fine, I'm going to do my job. And uh-huh. I'm going to make sure I don't stumble on the cables for the camera. Or sure, whatever. sure. Um, so... After that, going to Obuji, which Obuji was at the time number one, and so I kind of figured the media was going to be there. I, I didn't think that this is going to be more or less than the years before. It was more like this is going to happen, and there's going to be people taking pictures, and, you know, um, it's, it's a big place. Yes. So I expected it. Got it. So it was all circumstance that led you to all these things, and you yeah. say that it's a stroke of luck, but from the outside, it looks like you're this inside trader kind of like very savvy chef because before anybody wanted to go to Noma you were like oh I've already spent time there and by the time that this Sorcerer's Apprentice documentary comes out and everyone's like oh I want to go to El Bui you're like oh I've already been there then the first time I experienced you was when our paths crossed at Grace and it was like everybody wanted to be a part of this opening restaurant and you're like oh I'm already on the opening team so, like, the serendipity, I, I'm trying to just acknowledge, like, how crazy the circumstances have been for you. And it's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. I mean, people in my family say that I'm too humble and that I need to take more credit for everything uh-huh. that I've accomplished. And I've worked really hard to get to the places that I've get to. And more than just work hard to get to them is, like, work hard where I'm in it. You know, I, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into when I went to Noma. Yes. I could barely place that mark on a map. Uh-huh. I didn't know a thing about Danish cuisine. It was just like, I looked at the book and my ex had a job opportunity and it looked amazing. I'm like, hell yeah, let's go. Like I wanted to go to Europe and the opportunity presented itself and I just jumped when it came. Um, So yeah, the opportunities came and I just took them every time I got the chance. Funny story about my Noma experience was I wanted to go to Mugaritz first. And I didn't know anything about Noma. And uh, and then that was the year that they got number one, I want to say, 2011. Does that sound right? I think that sounds right. That sounds right. And so I was like, okay, I'll try this place, this Noma place, whatever. I didn't know anything. (laughs) I was very similar. I didn't know anything about Danish food or, you know, anything that Renee was doing. When you were there, what was the size of the team? Do you remember? 
Like, how many people were there? Was it still stagiaire crazy town? No, it was not. That's we what I thought. We had a small kitchen. I'm thinking, like, two people on abs, two people on three in the cold section, two hot. I'm thinking, like, 10, 11. Okay. Um, Interesting. And maybe two, three stagiaires a week, and that was sure. kind of it. And what was your role there were you sh- like chef de partie do you run a certain station no pastry so i when i got there i stashed for three months mm-hmm. i really i was very green i didn't know a thing um and i asked for a job three months into it and i'm not really thinking they were going to give it to me but they did wow <laughs> um so i started in the coal section and i was demi chef de partie until i left so i never really run a station and that would have been a lot of pressure. Yeah, it was yeah, a lot yeah. of pressure being Absolutely. the party as it was. Sure. And I can only assume Renee was there yes, all the time. Yes, he was there all, all the, the time. time. Every day. Um, can we touch on this article? Yeah. The article oh, that he the spoke article about? that he wrote. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just, because uh, at the, the underscore garnisher asks, how hard is it to work for Renee? And you have this unique perspective where he wasn't, Rene Redzepi from the New York Times, he was Rene Redzepi, chef at Noma, uh, in the kitchen all the time. Like you said, he was at number 15, right, on the list, which, I mean, if we're talking, if we're really talking, back in 2010, people weren't paying that much attention to World's 50 Best. Like, it was a list, it was definitely a thing, but people weren't holding it to the same regard. I mean, El Bouilly mattered, right? But not everybody else, really. Like, no one was talking about it. So what was... what was? Have you been since? Because you were supposed to go to MAD, right? I went to MAD. Oh, you went to MAD. Last year. Sure. Last September. Yes. And so did you get to go to Noma and see how it's changed? Because it's I totally did not. Different. Everybody wanted me to go and you should come and you should meet. But it was a really brief mm. visit. And I basically just got to go to MAD and spend a day in the city walking around and then got on a plane and came back to Seattle. Sure, sure. So this article that Renee wrote was effectively talking about how he was a bully in the kitchen mm-hmm. and how he had this intense regret and resentment towards himself for how he treated certain people on his staff in the early days of NOMA. Can you speak to that? Do you agree with what he said? Was he being too hard on himself? Was he not being hard enough on himself? No, I think he was being hard enough. <laughs> um, he was being perfectly honest. And yes, he, I mean, bully is a strong word, but he yelled at us a mm-hmm. lot. And he was definitely um, a struggle emotionally to be in the kitchen and be be yelled at the way he yells at people or watch that happen to others to the point that I, I would wake up in the middle of the night sometimes like with anxiety thinking yes. like, um, is he going to be me next? Mm-hmm. Um, hoping that someone else gets gets to take the brunt of exactly of you i but he's also an incredibly kind human like yes. you know financially my ex and i weren't doing great at the time and he was willing to give us food and you know feed us in any possible way that he could and help us in whatever way he could given our circumstances and he didn't have to do that you know he was he was a kind human being before he was a chef and i really really appreciate that that being said, you know, everything he wrote in the article is true. And I also remember the moment that he describes in the article saying that he yelled at me. And, um, you know, he remembers some things differently. Like he never kicked me out of the kitchen. I stayed in the kitchen. I finished service. But he screamed at me so loud that I was like outside of the restaurant. And people, you know, the screams went through the kitchen oh, into man. the dining room where guests could 
actually hear how how loud he was screaming you know and he was like so close to my face that yeah it's pretty intense wow do you do you remember what it was about or not that specific occasion but when he would get very angry or when emotions would take the best of him was it because a dish wasn't up to standard was it because cleanliness wasn't happening was it because he told you how to do something and you didn't like something else happened like it it was because things weren't up to standard. And mm-hmm. So for the most part, it was food in the dishes. And so I remember him screaming at another chef because his butter emulsion was broken and we're trying to plate the vegetables that have been cooked in that butter emulsion, but it's, n- it's not emulsified, sure. which means that they're going to get cold faster and the texture in your mouth is not going to be what it needs to be. Mm-hmm. In my case, I mean, I remember vividly, he yelled at me about an asparagus dish that was a new dish and we had like... 14 co- course meal for these VIP chefs that were coming in and scientists and you know it's the first time we plate this and we're plating it for a significant amount of people and the asparagus did not look alive enough on a plate wow. you know but that's a very broad thing to say what looks alive to me may not look alive enough to you Correct. and it's exactly what happened interesting so what is your reaction during that? Because I feel like there's a lot of people listening who probably had that happen to them last night or last week or last month. And they, I mean, it truly does. I've been there. You've been there. It causes some PTSD, but you're able to talk about it now. And I like, I've mentally moved past some of those moments myself. What have been two things in the moment? What are you thinking? Is it constant apology? Is it just absorb it because you're confident in yourself? Do you take it and then deal with it emotionally later? Mm-hmm. What what goes through your head when, when you're... That was exactly it. I just took it and I'm like, I'm going to deal with this later. I just, you know, we are still, like, our station still had to put up two dishes for this VIP table. And I'm thinking, <laughs> my station is going down and we're out here. You're screaming at me. They need me. They don't know what half the mise en place is for the next dish. Totally. Um so he's screaming at me and i'm just thinking like okay let's get this over with so that we can finish service and finish it successfully and then he gets more upset because he thinks that i'm not listening right um and i was like yes chef yes chef but it didn't matter what i said it wasn't enough for him and then Mm -hmm. he got more annoyed because i said yes chef yes Yes. and he's like you're not listening to me um i did the same thing (laughs) if it makes you feel better but it's a very like i feel like if i you know i'm not gonna argue with him there's no argument no way that's just not an option. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I feel like there's no winning. No matter what I say, Correct. he's not going to be happy. Um, but yeah, at the moment, I just kind of shut down. I listened to what he had to say. And I just wanted to, for the scream to be over so that we could move on. Yes. Because at a certain point, those blow up moments are an amalgamation of emotions. And you're probably tired and you probably had too much coffee that day and... There's stress and insecurity issues of like, if I send the dish out like this, what are people going to say about me? And I put some trust in this person and I should have just done it myself, but I can't do it myself because I have 50 other things going on because I own Noma. I'm the owner of Noma. And so once you started to be a manager, did it give you a different perspective on why he would yell at you the way that he yelled at you? Or does, is it like this unforgiven, like you don't see the value in yelling at people in that way. That's a great question. <laughs> I I absolutely saw things differently. I don't justify it. I 
don't know that I ever yelled at anybody like that. Um, But I also, I mean, I don't hold a grudge. I, like, have a huge respect for Renee. And even after that happened, like, he called me right away and he apologized. And I knew he really meant it. Um, And when I took him in a jury position, it was just, like, a new light to an understanding of where he was coming from. The pressure is different. And it's just, like, your name is behind anything that goes out of that kitchen. And you want it to be as perfect as possible. And there's people are always going to make mistakes. And, you know, in your head, or at least in my head, I feel like no one is going to do it better than I can. But you have to train your cooks to be able to do it better than you can. And it's, it's a struggle to f- be able to let go. Do you feel... Okay. Is there anything else you want to speak on there? Well, I did want to just touch briefly on the reason that you went to Matt is because they wanted you to speak about that article and bullying in general. Because wasn't last year's theme the culture of the kitchen or something along those lines, yes. right? What what happened there? Because um, they backed out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know it was a little. It was a week before, um, and they said that they weren't equipped to deal with you know having that conversation. It was a little disappointing, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it, at the same time, it wasn't something like at this point, I'm already doing flying trapeze. I've kind of unplugged from the culinary world and all of these things. And um, I I feel like enough was said and done when Renee wrote that article and it was published. So it wasn't something that I felt like necessarily that needed to be stirred or that I needed to share more about what happened. Um but, but it was definitely it. disappointing that they just backed out the way they did, and I still don't quite understand why. Yeah, that's interesting. But you're doing it now on the Emulsion Podcast, so it's fine. Well, there you go. <laughs> exactly. I like that. Yeah, the whole story is being told now. Um, well, well, where was I going to go with that? I was gonna, I was gonna continue to speak on that level of perfection and uh, discipline and high stress environment existed and you clearly got the brunt of it while you're at noma and then you make the decision to go to this place that's arguably even more intense than that at el Bui. what prompted that was it different did noma equip you to succeed at el Bui? i think it did i think it definitely did i also think that noma was more stressful than el Bui. wow and El Bulli, I mean, Noma, when I was there, it was all cooks. We had two, three stagiaires, and that was it. So the level of work that we had to do was, you know, it was almost unachievable. Yes. We had to be running around from the second you walk in the kitchen and try to get all your mise en place done, and it felt like you were never going to be able to get things done on time. Sure. And then you get to El Bulli, where you have 40 stagiaires, and you're feeding, you know, 40 to 50 people a night. And, mm. and so you have more people in the kitchen than the guests that you're serving, um, and they are very systematic about things. And so it's like you as a cook, you're being told what to do all the time. And you're going to shock this amount of oysters and you're going to clean this many roses and then you're going to cut these many things. And um, sure, you get yelled at. But for the most part, you know, it's the chefs de partie that get yelled at. And I was just a stagiaire. So the pressure was different. Um, I My experience at Abuja was different than most because I got to be the creative chef assistant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was a little bit more pressure to being that. And the creative chef was also incredibly kind. But every once in a while, he'll be like, come on, you got to pick up the pace. Or how come you don't know what we did yesterday and you don't have the recipe? And being on top of him was difficult, you know. And there was also a language barrier. I speak Spanish, yes. but I don't speak Catalan, which is the dialect that they speak. And he would 
mess with me constantly and be like, come on, do you really speak Spanish? And I'm like, yes, but I don't speak your dialect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. so is that what led to you getting that role? Is that there was less of a language barrier than, you know, someone like me who doesn't, my Spanish is mediocre at best. So how, what was the process that led, led to you being the stagiaire that landed that position as opposed to the guy who does the milk skin kind of thing? Actually, milk skins is what got me that job. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, I mean, I, could, I think it was a little bit of faith like anything. But, yeah, we we had a lot of people in charge of milk skins. And, you know, I remember they asked who knew how to take care of the milk skin or pull it out. And, and being at Noma, we did so many of those. Wow. Like, I raised my hands and I said, I do. And But, you know, I feel like m- not just milk skins. It was the fact, like, it was the work ethic and everything that I was able to learn at Noma. And, sure. you know, being able to move in a kitchen smoothly and smartly enough you know i try to watch as many things as i could when i walked at elbogi and maybe that's what got me the job i'm not sure sure so that position was a conversation that happened or did you apply specifically for that no so basically um they have you for the first week everybody's working in the kitchen there are no titles there's nothing that have been assigned they just all watch Mm. the 40 of us work and then by the end of that week, uh, they started assigning people. Got it. So having Lisa Abend there to document the whole season, and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to chat through some of this stuff in depth with you is because I feel like the experience, I feel like she did a decent job. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that there were things when I was like, that doesn't look real. Uh, but for the most part, I like being able to give this perspective of you are actually there you're not trying to you have no reason to make it sexier than it is or make it look more professional than what it is you just are telling about what happened do you think that she did a good job like if you watch that movie back do you feel like it was an accurate representation of the season is there a movie there is a movie are you freaking kidding no me? there is I, I, we need to watch it what so i saw it when i was in <laughs> i was in new york uh yeah and I don't know. Oh, there is a documentary. There is a documentary. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah, was yeah. going to be a movie about the book that never came yes. out. And I'm like, I don't tell well, me. Well, so here's the thing it's not like rolling around on Netflix. There's not like a bunch of people that have seen it. It's something it's about not the like creative great. process. Or... Yeah, it's called, I think, oh, uh, it's called Un- El Bui. Oh, my God. Joe, do you want to look this up for us? Um, it's it's an El Bui documentary um, about The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And let us know when you. So when it you is have about it The Sorcerer's Apprentice. It is about that season. Um, did they have cameras running around when you were they there? Did. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Um, okay. I'm, I'm not sure. I want to say I read the book first, uh-huh. and then I went into doing the. Um, yeah, I'm, I want to say I did the did the book first, um, but what was fascinating to me about that was that was her kind of big planting the flag as a food, a different kind of food media, mm-hmm. where. You know, chef's table wasn't a thing. People weren't following chefs around in that. Like people would for a New York Times article, but she would really like spend time talking to Ferran about the creative process and all that. What I did want to speak about Ferran and ask you was, there's a line in that book where he says something along the lines of, I believe that my stagiaires can cook certain things better than I can. And you spoke a little bit about it with Renee. But did you notice this change in Ferran versus Rene as leaders? Because Rene was in a very different place. He was young. He was, he had something to prove. You know, he was still striving for things. And Ferran was on top. He was, you know, he was number one. 
did you learn different things from different two of the, those two guys and how did that influence how you progressed after that? Absolutely. There were two completely different leaders, two completely different kitchens and philosophies about food and how things should be done. Um, and they both influenced me in very different ways. So El Bulli was all about being creative. Um, and But Ferran was, he was constantly tasting food that Oriol, the creative chef, made. And so Oriol is constantly cooking and working on new ideas and tasting new ingredients. And then he would like cook them or present them to Ferran and, you know, Ferran will have a thought of like, yo, what about we do this or what about the other? But Ferran was barely ever cooking. Mm. Um, Rene Redzepi was completely opposite. He was in the kitchen every day and he would, you know, help us and he would run service and lunch service and dinner service. I mean, there's one great story about him that like I will never forget. He, his wife is pregnant with the first baby and we have, I think, the 50 best coming in for lunch. And, you know, we knew that it was going to be a very stressful lunch. And, you know, some of us are, like, praying that <laughs> the baby comes today and he doesn't show up for service. Wow. And he walks in and he's like, I'm about to have a baby. But he puts the apron on. He does lunch service. And then he heads to the hospital. So the wife is already at the hospital We're getting ready for delivery. He comes in, does lunch service, makes sure that everything is smooth, smooth for the 50 best. And then he heads, heads home or to the hospital sure. to take care of the baby. And... You know, for me, like, that's a little too extreme. And, um, but that was his level of dedication. Yes. And, you know, his restaurant was his baby and he was going to be there for all the important moments. And he was going to be there until one o'clock in the morning. Sure. To make sure that everything went smoothly. Did you, so it took me a couple of restaurants to finally like get it right. Cause I was drawn to those kitchens for probably the same reasons you were like, it was creative. It was ambitious. Like there was tons of team camaraderie. Like there's a lot of good stuff that goes along with that. Yeah. But what kept hitting me was like, there's this underlying, like I didn't like the berating, the yelling, the screaming, the long hours for just sake of long hours. You know what I mean? And it took me a long time until French laundry. I got a little bit burnt out. When was that point for you? Did you? I think Grace was that point for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the hours were long, and it, I just, I worked enough for free in my life yes. at that point, and I wasn't making enough money to even cover rent, and I'm getting close to my 30s, I think. And I just feel like I've about had it, you know. I needed a little bit of security in my life like i wanted insurance at least and being able to pay the basic needs you know and so like there you are like working a ridiculous amount of hours and you can't barely manage your own life sure so that for me was kind of like a breaking point and i'm like how much longer am i going to sacrifice everything in my life for this and where does the balance come i don't want to speak too much on grace but do you remember what i was like at grace do you remember because i was I was very young. I was very inexperienced. I I started on cold side and then they saw that I like I wasn't doing so hot so they moved me over to work with Nick and be his like entremet chef. Do you remember anything? I I remember very briefly, you know, yeah. I feel like we are so focused on our <laughs> Head own down. thing and our own mise en place, but I remember thinking that you were very young. I think you were the youngest in the team. And I was like, I hope he knows what he's in for. You know, it was because it was going to be a tough ride. And especially since we were opening, you know, you you don't know what to expect. And I expected that it was going to be harder than anything else I've done in fine dining. Sure. 
Um, and, you know, other than you being young, I always thought that you had your things together. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall ever thinking like, man, he looks so messy and the station is all over the place. Sure. So whether you had your shit together or you did it, it never seemed like you didn't. I mean, I was like, what was I like? It was It was chaos in my head, but I always tried to make sure that I was like tight externally like well, and the, on the surface it looks cool but inside it was like a I hurricane think that's the most important thing nobody needs to know what's happening in your head that's true <laughs> that's totally true um there is a question from chef sammy cooks that is who is your biggest influence in life but that leads me into another question so who was your biggest influence in life my mom how so i think that the drive that i have and my willingness to take risks and really go for the things that I want to go for comes from her. Yeah. You know, I think she's raised me to believe in myself and she's also given me the comfort that I know if something goes wrong, she's going to be there for me no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has, have you had like a big meal that you've done for her or anything that you've kind of Cause I haven't done that for my mom yet, but oh, my mom inspires me a lot. But my mom doesn't like food. My mom doesn't enjoy food. Um, you mean other than they undercook chicken? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Have you uh, rebuttaled? I mean, I so I continued to do this, follow that tradition for like three years or so on Mother's Day. Yeah, and it wow. was Mother's Day and her birthday, and I always try to make it a surprise. And you know, she knew at some point that there was gonna be something. Yes. Um, but after I started cooking professionally, I tried to cook for her a couple times. Um, I, I thought they went great. I don't think she actually thought the same thing. Exactly. You know, I remember trying to cook sear tuna where you don't want to cook the hell out uh-huh. of it. You just want to sear, sear it and it. serve it and season it well. And the years later I found out, she's like, you serve me raw fish. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> so I enjoyed it. I don't know that she did. That's amazing. Yeah. I uh, love it. I wanted to use that as kind of a segue because from Grace, you moved to California and you start working at Ritz-Carlton. So what prompted that decision? What is it a friend of a friend that got you that position? Were you actively looking for that? Was it, again, just crazy good timing, Andrea Correa style? That's exactly Okay, okay. So that question was, creativity in the kitchen and how you've kind of been inspired over the years because this was your first going from you know working and helping and being a part of the tasting menu to now it's your tasting menu or your pastry menu right so speak on that what 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 was going through your head how did you juggle all of these inspirations and also tell your story like that's that's a lot all right i have like three points to yeah 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 so i'm gonna try to like break him down yeah um, first to answer how i got there it was serendipity i was not looking for the job i was committed to grace and i wanted to stay there and you know even before i started the job michael rotondo was moving to california and he like the opening was taking a little bit and he was like are you sure you don't want to just move to california i'm moving and when are we working at the rich carlton and i would love to bring you with me him and i we hadn't really worked together that long like we had spent a couple of days here and there at Charlie Trouders, but he, when I started at Charlie Trouders and I was there for a couple of months just staging, mm-hmm. like, but he walked in the kitchen a couple of times. He was also helping them with another opening. And then later after the restaurant closed, he was still doing some events for Charlie and um, 
he didn't have any of the cooks so him and i worked together in that kitchen as the kitchen was closed for like five days together just jamming me some plas and that was super fun but that's all he knew about me but for some reason he thought that we should work together and you know when i realized that i just needed better financial situation and mm-hmm. it's in the middle of the winter in chicago and i cannot deal with another winter in my life agreed um, and he's telling me you know it's 70 degrees here in california when it's like 30 degrees in chicago sure. um i jumped on a plane went to check it out you know see if it was a good fit i fell in love with it fell in love with the city fell in love with the job um so i jumped on the opportunity but like going back to your question on the creative process uh it, he he told me you are gonna have full creative freedom but he wasn't It wasn't like you're going to be the pastry chef. It was more like it's going to be a transition or at least that was my understanding. Sure. And I was like, okay, great. You know, I'll take the job and eventually I will be coming up with my own dishes. Yes. Um, I was terrified. Uh-huh. But I yeah, I thought I was going to have a little bit of time and then I got there and I'm doing like my HR training and an article comes out on a magazine in San Francisco saying that I'm the new pastry chef for the hotel wow. for the restaurant. And I was like, okay, well, I guess here we go. Yes. You know, I like, I better get on it. And you start coming up with dishes. And as far as that creative process, like this is going to bring me to trapeze. And Got it. I, there's something when we do, when we do flying trapeze, we do things in lines. Okay. Um, so we have a harness and we have some lines that are attached to us. So in case we do a trick and we're not going to land safely, someone can hold us and then place us in the night safely. Right, right. Um, and then once we're ready, then we decide to take the trick out of lines and it's really freaking scary. Yeah. There's, you know, nothing like it. And it just feels like you're never going to be ready to take a trick out of lines, no matter how much you practice it in lines, unless you do it and you just have to conquer the fear. And, and this is what the creative process felt like for yes. me. It's like, I was never going to be ready unless I did it. And I didn't even feel ready but the job just kind of fell in my lap and I took it and not really knowing that that was going to be like that. And so I just took the trick out of lines and started coming up with my own dishes. Yeah. 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 Were you drawing on past inspirations? Did you have certain things that you wouldn't touch? You're like, I'm not gonna, I don't want, I don't want this to look like LB. I don't want this to look like Noma. I don't want this to look like Bobby's pastries at Grace. You know what I mean? Like, did you have things like that going through your head or were you open to using that? Uh, so for me, I, I didn't have that. I never thought I don't want this to be like theirs. Although, I mean, I guess I'd never wanted to have a dish that looked too much like someone else's yeah. I've seen yeah. or eaten. Uh, but it was more... Uh, trying to draw from every experience I had. Yes. So for me, Noma, it was all about respecting ingredients. And Renee is very, very adamant about like letting the ingredients shine mm. in the plate, not necessarily have them be like, this is a Rene Recepi dish. He wanted it to be an asparagus dish. Sure, you know? sure. And then, you know, huh. so I wanted I wanted that to be part of my cre- my dishes. And, and then I also wanted to draw in the way the creative process worked at El Bougie. And so use all of the knowledge and all of the experience that I'd seen of how they come up with dishes as an opportunity for me to like work on that process. Yes. Um, and Grace, I mean, Bobby's pastries, his plating was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it, like it. And so I just wanted to use those techniques and make my dishes look, you know, half as pretty as his. Do any dishes stand out where you made them and you're like, this is, this is perfect. This is like exactly what I should be cooking because I'm going through a little bit of that right now where like I'll write a menu and I'll plate a dish and I'll serve it and people like it, but I can clearly see that this is not 
a Justin Kana dish yet. Like there's still things that where like like you said the lines are still attached and the lines aren't completely off. Um, has there been any like w- was there a certain point when you unlocked something? Because and this is a selfish question for me of like my creative process. And maybe if you have some examples that stick out in your head of dishes that were like, this is, I'm I'm doing it now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. I can think of several dishes. I don't to. I mean, to answer your question very clearly, I don't think there's always been a dish that I'm like, this is perfect yeah, and yeah, this yeah, is yeah. it. I feel like it can always be better. And I'm like, look back on them, and there were times where I'm like super happy with them, and then I look back on them, I'm like, oh, I could have done this differently, uh-huh. or I could have, you know, sure, seasoned it differently. Uh, but the, there's one dish that I remember crying over, which was strawberry basil. And really? I really struggle, and I tasted it a lot with Michael, the executive chef at the restaurant. Um, and then we had, I feel, I think I finished it right, like, the day before we had a food critic coming in, and it was a big hit, and he loved it, and it was in the article, and, you know, but it was definitely a struggle. and And it was just like strawberries cooked in balsamic or maybe like a basil granite and a base uh, balsamic reduction yeah super simple yes um i wasn't happy with the plating still i'm not happy with the plating but mm. the, the flavors were there and it was delicious sure um another example of something that came very differently um it was a sesame dish and this was a conversation that i started with a coffee friend and uh, and how they develop flavors through coffee and the roasting process. And we talked about that a lot. And I asked him questions about sesame and if he thought that could ever be paired with coffee because I really wanted to do a coffee sesame dish. And it took me over a year to finish that dish. Wow. And I'm really happy with the flavors. I think that's probably one of my best dishes ever. Do you remember what all the components were? How did how it came together? Briefly. I think it's a black sesame panna cotta with Mm -hmm. like, few teen sesame crunchies yeah yeah uh, strawberry ice cream uh, and candy kumquats wow yeah that's awesome uh love that because it's like the fruity element from coffee almost right playing into that love that um because once you hit your str- we paired that with coffee we did a coffee uh, dinner yeah there was coffee in the original dish and then i took it out because we did a coffee dinner and then we paired it with different coffees. Does that sound right? Eating knowledge? No. I Go think b- that's it. Try to match it with uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice, El Bouilly. Because um, there's, I, uh, it's El, uh, it's called that's it, it. Cooking in Progress. Yeah. Okay. That's the one. Got it, got it, got it. Yes, Cooking in Progress is the name of that documentary for anyone who wants to watch that. Uh, thanks, Joe. So going, when you hit your stride, you get offered the executive pastry chef position. And when we caught up for coffee, we were speaking about, you know, this big shocking revelation that happens when you go from, you know, cooking on the line, even, you know, being a lead line cook or, or even to running the show yourself. Like you are in control of managing this massive team of people who are just like you used to be. And it's, it's really hard. (laughs) It's like to, to put it lightly, it's, it's, it's pretty hard. So can you speak on that experience of becoming a manager and some takeaways that you, you learned? Um, because that's going to lead into our trapeze talk that we're going to go into, I think. Um, again, like the 
other job of just being pastry chef of the restaurant. I didn't think I was ready, um, but I was like, this is such a great opportunity that I just can't say no. Um, and I think that there was a lot of personal growth that I needed to do before I took the job, and I just kind of had to do it really fast. Mm. But the, the hardest thing for me is actually that the people that I was coaching or that I was managing were nothing like me. You yes. know, I'm, I am trying to lead a team of people that worked in a hotel for a very, very long time. And I'm used to working at fine dining restaurants where the expectations are really high and people are going to run and they're going to jump hoops and they're going to do whatever you ask them to do in order to get the job done. And I, I find myself managing a team of people that are older than me that have been at the hotel for 10, 15 years um, when I had just walked in the door. And so it's a struggle because their philosophy is very different about what they should be doing at the job. And I have to be careful with HR and how, you know, how I set the expectations and they need to get their 15 minute break and their 30 minute break. Um, and it was also a struggle for me because I had to believe that I had enough to give them, even though they have been there for 10, 15 years and they knew the operation in and out and better than I did. And I'm like, you know, um, I am easy 10 years younger than half of them. And yes. so like, who am I to come tell them how to do their job? And so that for me was the biggest struggle is to realize that I had a lot to give to the team. Yes. And so speaking on that, do you, do you think it's possible to have a restaurant that produces the food of the caliber of a El Bui French laundry, but has the culture of a place like Ritz Carlton where staff's taken care of, there's, HR, people get breaks, people are paid reasonably well. Do you think it's possible? I think it's possible. I think the industry has a lot of work to do in order to get there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I I mean, I think not necessarily, I wouldn't go all the way mm. out to say that we need to be like the Ritz-Carlton because it's too corporate and there's a lot of rules that need to be followed that I would not want to have in place. Yeah. But I also think that there is a lot that the restaurant industry could learn from a corporation of like, let's take care of our employees and, you know, let's give them insurance and make sure that they're taken care of so that when you're at your job, you're at your best. Yes. Yes. Were there any books or mentors that you looked to for advice when you were struggling through this transition or what did you, what did you do to make sure that there wasn't a mutiny or that you didn't get a talking to from your manager oh man i went home and cried <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um i the executive chef of the hotel was a great mentor okay chef louise he had worked he had done fine dining he did fine dining for a long time um he worked under eric repair for a long time yep um, and so he had an understanding of what both words were, words were like, and, you know, he just gave me some good pep talks and told me to trust myself more and re like value all of my experience and not try to be everything for everybody because that not, that's not what I was there for. Mm -hmm. You know, I was there to help them with things and to let them do their job, not to do the job for them. Right. But no matter how, how much he told me that, I feel like it was a hard lesson and I just needed to leave it and try to do everyone else's job and realize that it was impossible. So then I had to start delegating. Yes. So if there's someone listening who is about to go through that next month, they just sat down with their executive chef and they're like, listen, Joe, you're going to be executive sous chef next month. 
what advice would you give them? What should they be thinking about? What what has helped you? I think for me, delegating is the most important thing that delegating. you can do. Um, trusting your team, you know, like the second you start trying to do their job for them, one, you're telling them you don't trust them. And so that's detrimental to them and to you as a leader. So trust your skills, teach them what you know, and let, let them do it. Let them make mistakes because they're not going to learn unless they make mistakes. It's just a difficult thing to do. I came to that realization, I mean, of course, after a lot of years of abuse in kitchens that I was never going to yell as a manager. I was never. Because there was this quote that I read, some something along the lines of, and maybe this is a little bit sexist, but it's talking about how when a man yells, it means he's lost control. And I never wanted to not have control. And that's constantly what I prioritize when I'm working in kitchens, when I'm managing teams. And it's not a, a, a whole clenching the butterfly, you know what I mean, kind of control where you're going to kill it if you squeeze too hard. It's just a, just an overall sense of like, I have it under control. If the fish doesn't come in, if the guest sends the beef back, if uh, George on Garmage gets food poisoning and can't come in to work today, I have it under control. That was constantly like my biggest thing. And so I never wanted to scream. Was there anything from your experience where you're like, I'm not going to do that? Because I think that there's so much stuff that we, you learn not to do them in kitchens coming up, even more so than I learned how to do this. Was there anything that stuck out where you're like, I'm not going to do that? Exactly the same thing. I yeah. did not want to yell. You didn't yell. Nope. And that was a promise you made to yourself. Did you ever break it? Did you ever feel like you wanted... Uh, I mean, only one time, but I wasn't actually yelling at someone else. The sous chef yelled at me, and we were at a very similar level at the time. Like, I was in charge of the pastry team, and he was in charge of, you know, he was the sous chef, so he was in charge of everything else. But he decided to blame something, uh, the amuse seasoning on me. And yeah. I just remember slamming the table and cursing in Spanish out loud. <laughs> I lost it. I really didn't. Yeah. It just came out. And sure. You know, I wasn't trying to scream at him. And then he came and asked me, hey, what's up? You can't do that. You can't yeah. lose it like that. I think that's the only time that I recall. But yeah, yeah. And this is not to, as like a gotcha, like you did yell kind of thing. But just like I would go through these moments of like very introspective reflection on. And it helps, right, when you're on the same level as a person, because then it's not them talking down to you. It's like you guys talking to each other. Yeah. And I think that's also important where you're in a position of authority where you can actually take a little bit of yelling and, and give a rebuttal as opposed to, you know, the, this Renee story where you just have to stand there and kind of take it. But I would always try to focus on the work. Like, is us yelling at each other helping this dish get better? And that was always like my conversation that I would try to lead with as opposed to like more yelling and more screaming because I, I just saw it as being so unproductive. Um, I agree. But that's that's me. The question that I wanted to ask is what can chefs be doing better to help the next generation? Because it's what the show's all about. So, I mean, going to MAD September last year, I think the conversation that they're having, it's is leading the industry in the right direction. You know, I think like all the screaming and all the difficult work environments when you're on your feet for 14 hours a day with one meal that some restaurants you get to sit down, some you don't. Um, I don't think that's healthy and I don't think that's leading anywhere. anywhere. 
Um, and, and so the conversation that happened over three days that I was there was that, you know, let's try to change that. And there was some conversations about sexual harassment and, you know, it's nothing that I've close enough that I can relate to, but I'm thinking that's something that also needs to change. I feel like at this point is more about like going, shifting from having a conversation to actually making it a thing in your work environment. And I don't know that that's necessarily happening just yet. I mean, I've also been away from fine dining for five years, mm-hmm. maybe more at this point. And, and the hotel world is very different. So I don't think that that necessarily applies. Um, but for me, it's just switching the conversation to actually making it facts and actions at everyone's job. Cause it's easy to talk about and acknowledge, like it's easy to say we work very long hours but very similar to what we just spoke about with, you know, if you're not going to scream, what are you going to do instead? Like when something goes wrong or if we're not going to work 14 hours, what's the alternative? Cause everybody knows the problems exist, right? Yeah. Everybody knows it sucks. Everybody knows it's bad. And it's just like this weird thing that we just accept weirdly. And I think that, yeah, like you said, providing, talking about it and then coming up with actions that we're going to do is going to be the the alternative have any stuck out that you've heard of where you're like that's really smart more people should be doing that oh man though i don't remember the specifics but i there was a restaurant chef in australia that he i know he's like he's changed the schedule so that people work like eight hour shifts instead of 14 hours and he seemed to be really really taking care of his team but i don't remember his name yeah or the specifics okay okay speaking of getting jobs before we switch to trapeze related chat uh at chad bosquez asks i have a pastry background and i've had some trouble getting hotline roles or interviews any advice on that so going from i only have worked pastry and now i want to apply to work savory and people don't want me because they think i'm just a pastry person can you what what would what would be your advice how would you go about it um, I mean, I did savory for seven years before I did pastry. So I don't think there's such a thing as, no, you're not good enough or you won't be able to do it. I think, you know, choose carefully what direction you want to take when you go to savory. Have a reason why. Do your homework and go there and tackle it and, you know, take the challenge. I don't think anybody's going to say no. You already have the understanding of how the kitchen works. Savory is going to be different. So just walk in humble and learn and do the job. I think it's also not being apologetic about it, right? Because if you lead with, I'm sorry, I'm just a pastry person, as opposed to like, I crush it at pastry, here's why you should hire me. Absolutely. I think that's also like a big portion of it, where having the confidence, again, back to changing careers that we spoke on earlier, is like, if you apologize that you were a finance person, and now you want to do the kitchen, that automatically sets a bad tone with people. Yeah. But if you have the confidence to say like, no, I'm very organized, Half the people want their hotline to be more organized, right? Um, I just think that's kind of interesting. So moving from kitchens to trapeze, what prompted it? Where are you at now? Give us those, you know, like points in the timeline. Um, So about four years ago, I just... I was looking for like a fun workout and I randomly online, I found flying trapeze in Oakland and I was working at the time in San Francisco and I was like, Oh, I got to go check this out. Um, found it, took a class, fell in love with it. 
after my first class. And then slowly but surely, I started changing my schedule and, you know, trying to go to Oakland every morning or every other morning. They have morning classes. And so I, I went from not being a functional human being before 11 a.m. to actually flying trapeze at 10 a.m. in wow. the morning. That was a huge shift. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then delegating more to my pastry assistant so that I could do a little bit more training. So, it, like, it was a work in progress for four years until I decided to take the leap of faith and make the shift. Sure. And that was quitting the job at the hotel and teaching or? Uh, so, I quit my executive pastry chef job at the Ritz and my plan was just train full time until yes. I could figure something else differently mm. they asked me to stay part time which it. was great so I basically was no longer managerial but mm -hmm. I stayed helping with me some plus and I worked 20 hours a week for six more months um, and so these allowed me to get a little bit more of an understanding of what the trapeze industry was like and what it is that I needed to do and I started talking to people and I met I had met some people from the school here in Seattle um, that came to Oakland and we came and visit the school here and so talking to them kind of gave me a little bit more of direction and so after the six months I just decided to move to Seattle and come and train here the school here has a lot of people that actually fly in the professional circus and then just come here and spend a month or two in between gigs um, so it's great to have that influx of people that actually work in the circus. Sure. You hit a little valuable nugget in there, which was working part-time on one thing while you're trying to start this other thing. And I don't think that gets talked about enough. And I really want to acknowledge it because the sexy thing to say is I quit my job and just went for it. Mm -hmm. But there's immense practicality in making sure that you have something to support you while you're, because then there's not so much pressure on you or like if you have a bad day at trapeze and you left your very stable kitchen job where you felt comfortable and skilled and confident in yourself, if you have a bad day at trapeze, it's very easy to feel like you suck yeah. and that you're worthless and that life is crumbling on you. But if you have this thing where you're like, I'm learning, I'm putting in the work I'm growing slowly, but I'm supporting myself financially in this other thing. I feel like that's that's very, very valuable. D I mean, I still have those days where I wake up and I feel like I'm crumbling. And yes, I don't know what I'm doing. yes, <laughs> yes. But you're more, you're a little more confident now. Yeah, I no, would, you're I right. Argue. And I, I mean, yeah, the part-time thing worked out to my advantage. And I mean, it was something that I, it was them offering it to me. Yes. I didn't ask for it because I didn't think that would be an option. Sure. But it worked out really nicely. It exists is where I'm trying to lead people to is that like if they think that they're the only option if they want they're sitting at a desk and they want to go into kitchens you can stage on your weekends oh absolutely and slowly work your way into it it doesn't have to be this you know cut the lines kind of situation um what really struck out to me though when you were speaking on trapeze is the way that you thought about not just taking your work ethic and mentality from kitchens into learning trapeze, but you told one of your coaches to use those references to help you learn certain tricks, right? So how how does, what was my question? How does trapeze relate to kitchens and how do you think about it? Oh, man. 
Um, to clarify, I did not tell him to coach me that way. He, he's smart enough that he knows that. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, it really hit a home run with that because, the, you know, all of, and he, when he was younger, he worked as a dishwasher in a kitchen. Um, and so he has an, enough of an understanding to be like, you know, me some plus and how kitchen flow goes and all of that. So he, he knows enough that the reference actually worked really well. Um, and how trapeze and the kitchen world relate. They are so similar. It's, it's scary sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, service is a show. And so in Flying Trapeze, we're putting up a show. And in restaurants, we are too. And it's about, you know, having the mental capacity to go through the difficulties of whatever it is that you go through in your day while you're setting up for the show or while you're setting up your mise en place for dinner service. And whether that goes smoothly or it doesn't, the show must go on. Yes. And you have to, you know, just make it happen. And I I have yet to do a professional show. I'm getting ready for an audition next week. Yes. Which I'm really nervous about. Yeah. <laughs> um, but from the conversations that I've had with different people that work in, in the industry, it's about, you know, being willing to ask questions and... And then when it comes time to do the show, do my best and stay in the moment. Yeah. What was, what's the hardest thing you're working on right now? Trapeze-wise? Yes. Wise? Yes. Oh, man, there are two things. So forward over, which is, I think, the second video I sent you. Yeah. Uh, where you are on the bar. So instead of being under the bar, your your hips are on the bar. And then you flip over the bar. Um, and you have to stall, stall the flip so that then someone can catch you. I've never caught this. I've just took it out of lines recently and it needs some work. Um, it, but it's, it's, yeah, it's really scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other one? The other one is called a passing leap. And I actually only started working on this yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically you have two flyers in the air. So one person gets caught wow. by the legs. And then that person returns to the bar. And as you're about to return to the bar, then someone else goes over the bar. So basically, you have a flyer that goes under and a flyer that goes over. Sure. And then two of the flyers end up in the bar at the same time. And then you remount the bar yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, Got it. I um, was... So, yeah, that's really scary. Yeah, it's super scary. We were talking at our coffee meeting a couple of weeks back about, you know, I was talking about how both are so physical both require so much, you know, trust in your teammates and trust in your coaches or mentors, you know, in, in whatever way you think about it like that. Do you miss, are there any elements that you miss that you feel like don't check the box or is it the reverse where you feel like there was something in you that is so fulfilled now with trapeze? Oh, that's hard. Um, I don't miss the kitchen yes yet, mm-hmm. and I feel like flying trapeze kind of hits all of the boxes. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that eventually I will. I mean, when you told me that we could do an event together, I was so excited. Yes. I was like, hell yeah. Yes. I get to be creative again and come up with dishes and be in a kitchen. Mm. So that really excites me. I mean, I think, actually, if there's anything that I miss is getting to be creative. Right? Yeah. Once in a while, you know, if I go to the farmer's market or, mm. I, I don't know smell something i'm like oh that could be so good and i start thinking of flavor combinations but i don't have the outlet to let that creative process go Mm -hmm. um 
but fly entropies fulfills pretty much everything else yeah because you're i mean it's a new project right like i feel like you and i are similar in that when we get a new something to focus on we will heads down like focus on it and laser focused and head yeah we won't think about anything else because there's a lot of satisfaction that goes into that in feeling improving day after day after day and like i couldn't do this last week but now i can yeah that's a really satisfying thing i mean and you i feel like you hit a point there that it's exactly what the two bring for me Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've heard of the state of flow yes so that's exactly what it is it's Mm -hmm. like for me this and it's hard to describe but state of flow is like a state of mind where you are so focused on what you're doing that nothing else matters or nothing else you know you can't your mental capacity is filled with the one thing that you're doing yes nothing else is gonna fit in Mm. and you know the kitchen did this for me for a very very long time and there was nothing like doing service and working with your team and not having to say anything to you to your station partner and they knew exactly where you were going or what you were doing and they would just finish the sentence for you, finish yes. the plate or whatever it was. And flying trapezes does the same thing for me and it brings me to the same mental state where I have to be so focused that nothing else fits. Mm. Which I feel like is the one thing that drew me to it. When I started doing it, you know, work was all I had and I started doing flying trapeze and work didn't matter anymore. Like I would go to do flying and you know, your life is at stake. So I couldn't think about work. I couldn't think about relationships. I couldn't think about anything else in life except for what was in front of me. Right. Do you feel like... Hmm. I was going to ask about the inflection point that you hit when it stopped being about that state of flow, right? Do you, So maybe oh, here's, yeah. here's a better question. Do you ever feel like you hit flow state as a manager? I don't. That's and the I problem. I think people can. Yes. I think some people are so talented at being managers. They're no longer managers. They're leaders. And But I don't think that's me. <laughs> Same. I feel like I, I'm, I'm a little bit better at it now. Like I finally feel like I can hit the moment where I see all the pieces moving as a, as a leader, as a manager. And then I feel like I hit that flow state and that's amazing. But I feel like, I don't know as this weird psychoanalysis is trying to think about, you know, hearing you talk about these different experiences and what actually made you happy in these certain places. I feel like that's part of the issue is that you hit this point where you're like, I see where this road ends and I need to change course and do something else. Yeah. Um, You hit a home run. That's exactly what it was. Interesting. Interesting. So you mentioned when you were at Ritz, what motivated you to try trapeze was you wanted a different kind of a workout. Are there any techniques or habits that you would use in your time at restaurants to stay healthy? That's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I was the healthiest when I was in restaurants yeah. ever, really. Mm. Um, but I also worked in Singapore, which I don't think I mentioned that. No. Um, and when I was there, I started doing yoga. Got it. And I would highly recommend it. I mean, it's something that I try to continue to do on my own time. It it allows me to be better at work. It just feels like I'm better at <clears throat> I'm better at fixing problems. I my my mental capacity. I just like I have a clearer mind for yes. things, and then my body feels better. Right. If someone wants to start with yoga, where should they start? Is there a YouTube video or a app? I recommend you find a studio. Okay. I, I mean, you could go check out a couple and see which one you like. Yeah. Coach, there are a lot of different kinds of yoga. There's a lot of different type of 
coaching and you know i went to some studios that i hated and yeah I, so i don't think that i don't think yoga is for everybody i also think there's a lot of different types of yoga and you can find one that you like you just have to give some a try is there a I'm, beginner level well because most people especially if they're in kitchens are probably not if they're standing all, all day they probably have very tight hamstrings their hips are probably tight yeah is there a type of class that you should start with I feel like most students will have a beginner class. A beginner. I did hot yoga. It wasn't exactly Bikram, but it was a hot room. Yeah. And so the heat actually really helped you get like... Loosen up. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Do you meditate at all? I don't. Yoga is my meditation. Yeah, your meditation. Yeah. yeah. Um, would you do anything with like drinking tea or making smoothies or having, you know, protein bars or anything during in your time at restaurants or even now? that you feel like makes you more on your game? Uh, I went through a phase where I did a lot of juices and I would just make a healthy juice in the morning and it made me feel better for sure. It's Mm -hmm. a hard habit to stay on top of. It's expensive. It's expensive and cleaning the juicer just sucks. Yeah, it's it's true. (laughs) It's totally true. Uh, Marco Mary Mariani wanted to know if you use any of the restaurant techniques or, you know, modernist cuisine foraging when you're cooking at home no not really uh i actually didn't cook at home ever until very recently yeah i basically until i left the restaurant industry and i was like okay now i get to cook that's interesting um but no for the most part i just try to you know cook healthy especially with my new lifestyle sure um (laughs) what is a common mistake that you'll see new people to an industry make and i'm saying that because you can take it in the kitchen direction you can take it in the trapeze direction what is a common mistake you'll see people make oh i mean i'm gonna go towards the kitchen i think for me the thing that i saw the most was young culinary school kids walk in the kitchen thinking they're chefs yes and i I don't know. For me, being humble is one of the most important things in life, mm-hmm. not just in the kitchen, but I saw it a lot in the kitchen. You, you're you not. You just learned a lot of things, but you haven't applied them yet. Sure. And you're working into an environment where people have things, that, you know, they're setting their own ways and you're the new one that needs to adapt to their ways. Mm. Even if this isn't the way they taught you in culinary school, even if it's wrong, if this is the right way to do it here and be humble enough to be open to their ways of doing things. Sure. Love that. Uh, this is a funny question I like to ask, and I have a feeling your answer is going to be interesting. You somehow get a call right now after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant, and when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk to waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant, and who is that person? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Okay, I'm going to need a second. That's fine. Take your time. And the the thing that sometimes unlocks it for people is this person can be living or dead. can be uh, Abraham Lincoln if you want it to be Abraham Lincoln. In the meantime, this is kind of an easy rapid fire layup. It's the first day off after your work week and you're standing in front of your kitchen. How do you make your eggs for yourself? Sunny side out. Okay. Yeah. I actually... I had a funny thing with eggs, but when I was at Noma, I got really sick with uh, eating quail eggs. No. And so, like, for a long time, then I just wouldn't eat eggs at all because they just, like, the texture and yeah. they reminded me of that experience. Um, I had that at Grace with coconut water. Oh, really? Oh, I, I had, 
who bought us somebody got me a coconut water for work and i don't know if i just left it out on the counter and then i came back and drank it but i like i got really sick and thank goodness it was like on one of our weekends so i don't have to miss a day of work or anything but like i couldn't drink coconut water for up until probably like last year it just had a weird thing with me and i couldn't i couldn't do it i just couldn't do it yeah yeah i still don't eat quelix which yeah. they followed me the i bet net. like yeah yeah food's weird like that food food memories can be bad too everybody yeah. talks about these good food memories mm-hmm. but they can be just as bad did you think of a restaurant did i think, think of, of a pers- person yeah my mom for yeah, sure. yeah yeah yeah. i i mean actually there's only one place that i ate with her which was the restaurant in italy okay um she's not much of an eater yes you know she, she eats pretty simple humble food and mm. so she was pretty blown away i think that some of the stuff that we ate was out of her comfort zone but you know sitting there and having dinner with her was super exciting and watching her just giggle and get excited about things that she didn't expect was a lot of fun yeah i don't know where i would go with her i mean maybe alinea yes i i I in there before I stashed there one time and they actually sat me down for dinner. Yeah. Um, and it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. It's it's so fun. Everything tastes freaking amazing, but it's also an experience. And yeah, they make it fun for you. So yeah, I think she'll enjoy. She that. would have a good time. You mentioned before we turn the mics on that she is a little nervous with your transition. Oh yes. Is there? Do you think there's going to be a point when she, you know, whether it's you get uh, signed on to a show with a contract of you know X amount of money or x amount of time where she's gonna finally like exhale and say andrea is okay or it's con she's just that way as a mom she's constantly gonna worry about you i think she's just a mom and she's always gonna worry about me and i feel like this new career i've chosen you know it it has is intricately dangerous it Mm -hmm. is it comes with the job and there's always a safety net but you know if you don't know how to land it doesn't matter how much of a net you have and so yeah she's i think she's always gonna worry yeah yeah do you see it as this ongoing process with trapeze or do you feel like there's going to be a point when you, you feel like you made it, like you feel like y- you're, you're there, like you, you have the confidence to find something that's a little bit more stable or that's not a worry of yours right now? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I constantly, I wake up worrying every day trying to figure <laughs> out what this is going to take me yes. and, you know circus life is not an easy one and you know you're traveling from town to town and you don't have i don't think you have a comfy room and Mm. you're sharing everything with a group of people in a very tiny space and so you know it worries me that maybe i'm too old for this Mm -hmm. or like i'm set in my life and i'm set in my ways and you know i just that maybe I've gotten used to being comfortable. Sure. I don't consider myself as someone like that, but it does definitely worries me since I don't know what I'm getting myself into. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think I'm going to reach a point where like I've made it. But if I get a contract, I mean, that's still going to be, it's going to be awesome. A huge accomplishment. Awesome. Uh, is there anything you want to leave people with? Any advice, any pointers, any, thing that you want people to look at or i mean i'm obviously going to show a few clips of you flipping around up there it's going to (laughs) be awesome um i mean the kitchen and flying trapeze being related i feel like was a point i didn't hit that i thought about yeah you know there's 
it needs to be some plus, you know, in the kitchen, you have all of your things in place and it's very important. And you know, the better job you do setting up your station, the better you are going to be for service. And that also applies for flying trapeze. And you know, there's like a physical mise en place and there's a mental mise en place. And so the physical is like having your grips and your wraps and your outfits and leggings if you need them. Um, but I think more importantly is having the mental mise en place and it's like, bringing yourself to the right state of mind in order to be able to have a good show and you know to be focused enough and it's not as easy to do as one would want you know, but but if you can do that i feel like you can do anything in the world you know so like being able to understand your mind and use it for whatever skill or job you want it's, it's the best skill that anyone could have take me through that that mental like when you're standing on the platform up there do you envision it in your mind happening and then finishing and then you getting down back down on the ground and then like, you know, high-fiving someone or what is that? What does that mental process look like for you? So like, for instance, the forward over trick that I, told yeah, you about, yeah, yeah. Uh, I took it out of lines whenever that was. And I talked to my coach and I was really scared to take it out. And, you know, I had done three really good ones the night before and he was like, he's ready to take it out. Um, and I was like, I am not ready. And he was like, okay, whenever you are. And that whole night I barely slept and I was just going through the trick over and over yeah, and over yeah, in yeah. my head. And I, I knew what my body needed to feel. I know I knew what my body needed to do. And I, there is like science behind the fact that like visualizing things in your head, the fact if you can do it in your head and you can do it clearly and successfully, then that actually means that you, your body can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's basically what it is for me is just doing things in my head and doing it repeatedly, but like very conscious of every movement that I do and what my body should feel. Um, so yeah, that's sure. kind of my mental mise en place. Chef Cliff Smith asks, has Justin always had the same haircut? And I did not. You can watch the Grace documentary. Did you, did you watch it back? I did. Yeah. I had a buzz cut and I didn't have a beard. Because they made a shave. Oh, that I remember. They also made me not wear my bright, full, colorful headband. Oh, that's right. It's be white with gray. That's so annoying. That was your style. It was my style. That's so annoying. Um, oh, you know what I was going to ask? I was going to ask when... It's It's such a funny thing in kitchens with... If your station is not set up your manager will come over to you and say, you're not set up. What's going on here? Yeah. Like, wh why, why are you not set up? The flip, the flip side, if, if, if we are saying that the, ment the mental side and the physical side, mental mise en place and physical mise en place are so important, why is there no conversation of, like, you're not set up in your head right now? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. I feel like it needs to be a, b a bigger conversation. I agree. Where... Uh, I lost my Metro card this morning. I got in a big fight with my wife and, you know, my dog peed on the carpet before this morning and I'm not in a good place mentally right now. I don't know. I don't know how to start that conversation because it's clearly different for everybody. But I just think like speaking on mental mise en place, like you said, I don't know how we start that conversation. Do you, do you think there's a good... I, I don't know. I I mean, what you just said just reminded me of uh, uh, screaming much with Renee. <laughs> yes. Actually, he wasn't yelling at me. I don't remember who he was yelling at. But he I remember him saying to one of the cooks, like, I don't care if you broke up with your girlfriend today. I don't care if you're having huh. 
apartment issues with your apartment and the lease or whatever like there are people flying from all over the world trying to come eat here and they don't care about your personal problems we're here to have a good service and that's what matters sure and i mean i think it's a little harsh like you can't we're all humans and we have to deal with our emotions and sometimes you know if you just broke up with your girlfriend it's really difficult to have a good service but he also has a good point like he, i mean it's a mental control and being able to like okay let's set that aside focus on what i have in front of me because if i worry about the other thing it's not gonna make this thing any better and i think for a show in flying trapeze like if you were worried about breaking up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend i mean you might get severely injured mm -hmm. like and so you have to be able to have your priorities straight sure at that moment do you think that's what influences like i had the and you're pretty much the same where we did all of our traveling and our world exploration and our working for free when we were young because it's easy to do that when you don't have obligations but do you think that's why chefs are the way that they are is because you're better off being more minimalist and having less things in your life because it allows you to focus more on the task at hand or the service tonight basically absolutely yeah i mean i also think it's detrimental to our relationships in life <laughs> yes because you can't dedicate the time but do you think so that's that's maybe the other question back to what we were speaking about with uh finding that balance between super corporate ritz carlton and super scrappy noma where that middle line is where like because would you would you encourage is it possible to have a nice family and go out with your friends and have friends <laughs> like i think it has to be i think it should be yeah um i don't know what the balance is i mean but i i was able to actually have a life when i was at the ritz carlton and i, I couldn't even handle it at first i'm like i don't know what to do with myself sure. at this time yeah but something's got to give right yeah, like absolutely. you can't have you can't have it all you yeah. can't have all of it and i think people are slowly wrapping their heads around it and realizing it and i think that's why it's so important that one, we're talking about it, but two, like larger outlets like MAD are bringing up the conversation. Um, anything else? Anything else you want to chat through? No. We need to do a dinner together. Yes, we do. ASAP. What is, when do you get back from Florida? Uh, the 18th. Does that cancel Vegas? No. Okay. So it, I don't, I mean, it's, it's a trial week, so yes. I don't know if I'm going to get the job, but yeah, if I get yeah. the job, I will go to Florida after I finish Seattle spend a month or so with them and then i would move to vegas and go training vegas. oh my goodness that's crazy yeah I'm well congratulations i'm so excited for you thank you and thank you for being on the show thank you for having me eh eh did you enjoy that i had a great time catching up with andrea we obviously jam on so many topics and i really hope that the scheduling works out so we can cook together soon chances are by the time that this episode goes, goes live that might have already happened uh but regardless i hope this conversation provided you some value if you want to get in touch with andrea links for her are down low in the description as well as uh anything else relating to this podcast as well as ways that you can support the show on sites like patreon thank you so much for your attention please roll the outro 
We did it. You're in Outro Land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justinkana.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, excuse me. Pardon me. <laughs>